Welcome to Unraveling Midlife. I'm your host, Sarah Spence. This show is inspired by the midlife crisis, astrology transits according to Western astrology. These transits are phases that everyone goes through in life, specifically starting in the mid to late 30s through the early to mid 40s. A little later, there's a time of significance around the age of 50. It's those years that are often called the midlife crisis, which I call the midlife unraveling, thanks to Brene Brown's excellent article. These times can be the opportunity to confront our biggest fears, find our way through the foggy times, bounce us from one extreme to the other, and give us health checks, just to name a few. And I'm right smack bang in the middle of it all. And that's why I'm exploring my own midlife by speaking with others about their experiences and the tools they've used to walk through this time with as much grace and awareness that can be mustered. At the end of the episode, you'll hear a music track by me that links in to the discussion. On today's show, we are talking all things yoga with Swami Karma Karuna of New Zealand's Anahata Retreat Centre. Karma Karuna was born in Hawaii and from an early age travelled, exploring diverse spiritual traditions, finally dedicating herself to the yogic path. She lived in yoga ashrams, ashram meaning spiritual home, and received yoga training in Nepal, India and Australia before moving to New Zealand, where she opened a retreat centre based on the tradition of yoga she was so deeply steeped in. Karma Karuna teaches internationally and has reached people of many nationalities through facilitating regular retreats in India. These days, in 2021, the world is a little different, so currently she's teaching online much more as well as around New Zealand. Our discussion does delve deeply into yoga, no surprises there, so expect to hear terms about many different aspects of yoga. No, it's not just stretching, asana, with a lie down at the end. We cover pranayama, breathing, yoga nidra, yoga of sleep, and the starting to get much better known kirtan, joyful chanting, that you'll get a taste of after the interview. Welcome to Unraveling Midlife, Swami Karma Karuna. Hello, thank you for welcoming me. It's an honor to be here. It's great to have you. I know that you're the guest I've talked to so far who I've known the longest. Um, so there's a lot of that time through my own kind of midlife astrological transits, but also the Saturn return that time around 29, where things kind of the structure of life might change a bit. And uh, I know that you've had a look at, at what uh, what those dates were for the transits for yourself. And, and everyone I talk to goes, oh, that's interesting. Very interesting. So I like to ask people um, and talk to people like yourself who I've learned a lot from just you know what are the secrets of getting through that midlife (laughs) (laughs) well I know for me um, actually it was really fascinating to look at these different transits and I could see really major um, life changes at those points so very fascinating and I think For me, really, it has been the grounding of the yogic practices and teachings that have continued to grow. So in a way, my first transit um, when I was 29 
that was actually, I realized when I first got my initiation of Panama Sanyas with Swami Naranjan, my teacher. And um, that was a very significant time period where I had been doing yoga and practices before that, but it was like I came onto my particular path and really started to take it seriously in a different way. So it wasn't just exploring anymore, but it was like, yes, this is a pathway for me that helps me transform. And I can really see how um, as each of the transit come came, there was different really key points where like my daughter um, left home and went to live in Australia at, at a particular point. And that was when there was that sense of loss and surrender. So the Neptune transition. And, uh, and then shortly after that, uh, not too much longer after that, a few years after that was when my my husband and myself split up and went in different directions, which really changed my life at a personal level, but also how I've been running our retreat center. And yeah, really interesting to see these quite significant points in my life. And and yoga has been the tool that I've come back on to. And particularly, I would say the relaxation practices. So anything to do with restoration, the yoga nidra, restorative yoga, really simple practices have been my keystone so much we can unpack here you started by talking about an initiation and obviously yoga is your life and I know this I know a a fair amount about the tradition you're involved in because I was a large part of my life um, and still is yoga nidra oh we'll get to that yoga initiation now you were in India if my personal knowledge of you (laughs) is correct what's an initiation I I suppose I formally took up a yoga path. So you you can, of course, go to yoga classes and live even yoga lifestyles and um, have different experiences, and many people do that. But in this case, I very much connected to a particular lineage tradition where I um, made a commitment to myself and also working in alignment with that tradition and that first occurred for me in uh, 99, actually in early 99, and um, and then continued to grow. And in our tradition of yoga, there are certain um, initiations that you make a commitment. For example, the first one is making a commitment to a mantra practice. And the second one is you're, you bring in some text that you might read and you get a little bit more connected. The third one is, which was the first initiation I received, is about living your life in the world, but also living it with yogic principles like non-attachment, living to your, or according to your dharma, which is your highest aspirations, and really directing your life in such a way that it's not, not just living to live, but living with a connection to a higher purpose, I guess, is how I would describe it in simple terms. And um, and then the, the last initiation for me was entering fully into this path, which is called Purna Sanyasana, which is why I'm called a Swami. And um, that's when you could say I gave up the outside or external world and dedicated myself fully to 
this particular path of yoga. And, and within that, um, I accept and honor all pathways, but I have my practices and certain key cornerstones that I come back to, which are from this particular tradition. That's a big topic, isn't it? I mean, I know that my my involvement um, around the time just before my Saturn return, uh, I also took um, a mantra and then uh, the level two, the Jignasu initiation, and I was given a Sanskrit name, as as were you. So, what what's the meaning of a Sanskrit name, and what does your name mean? Well, my name means uh, karma, meaning action, and karuna, compassion. So it's when I was given this name, I was also given instructions to aim to step into the shoes of others and to act and support and serve from that point of view that I understood what it felt like to be in their shoes. And in that way, I could support people more, I suppose. So um, karma, karuna is action of compassion. And spiritual name, the Sanskrit spiritual name, it's a mantra in a way. So each time it's used, it creates a particular vibration. And then if you have that essence or that meaning with it, it gives a pathway. I feel like it gives me a pathway in order to develop myself. And at that point in my life, you know, I suppose I would have been more selfish and more eye-oriented in my 20s. And it was a way in which I could start to develop myself put my focus, my energy in a particular direction in order to um, help others, but also to help myself. I, so the Sanskrit name, it's a vibration that, that is supportive, but it's also like a pathway or a, a, a um, has the, I don't know the right word to say it, but a pathway to understand ourselves and a pathway to develop, develop our spiritual practice and, our way of connecting and relating to others and ourselves. It's lovely to hear it described as that. I mean, for me, I know it's always a work in progress. My Sanskrit name being Prem Ratna, which I translate as jewel, like a diamond kind of jewel uh, of unconditional love. And I remember getting it and going, whoa, whoa. Um, wow, there's a life <laughs> life to live to create it and I found it interesting um, because I'd, I'd lived for a long time at an ashram which was kind of a cousin tradition to the Bihar school um, in Canada at Yashodra ashram and there they chose a name for themselves but only after like about 30 years of and they only had uh, Purna Sanyas uh, and a Brahmacharya um, initiation before that so different uh, different traditions came down from that kind of grandfather uh, teacher Swami Shivananda of Rishikesh um, and so to come into uh, this tradition where it's um, you have the name and you work to become the name and it's like a reminder and it's just a very different kind of approach for it. Um, I remember being at Anahat, your retreat center and someone looking at me and said oh I understand now and we just done kirtan, joyful chanting, we were singing. He said, oh, now I've heard you sing. I understand why you have your name. And I'm like, oh, right, I better keep singing. <laughs> yeah, it gives us a, a way forward, actually. And, and it is that, that we're constantly 
evolving and understanding ourselves more and in a way, as you said, working towards the culmination of that name. I certainly don't feel like I'm fully Karma Karina. There's always more work to do because the I-ness does come in and I, I'm, it's, it's not that always I feel compassionate for people. There's times when I don't feel that compassion, but by developing and working with myself in this idea of compassion that's allowing me to continue to expand myself and I I feel that change over the years. So I have been at your talks and heard them online for a number of years and they get better and better and I know that there is such a vast array of tools in your toolbox that you teach. You did mention yoga nidra and restorative specifically tell listeners that might not know about yoga nidra about the world's best kept secret um (laughs) and so yoga nidra restorative and has your attitude to these changed over the years oh absolutely yeah when i was in my younger days it was all too slow and boring i think (laughs) To, to pause and do yoga nidra or to do really gentle practices and I think at different times in life, we do also need a different practice. But what I've found um, when I became a mother, particularly Yoga Nidra was so amazing because while my baby um, had her nap, I could also have something that rejuvenated me in a really short time, which allowed me to simply sustain my balance a little bit better in day-to-day life. So yoga nidra from that point of time became very important for me. And the more I understand it and the deep, more deeply I've gone into it, um, I have really seen how important it is for almost everybody. And it's a practice in which you can lay down. There's eight stages in the Bihar tradition of yoga nidra, which is actually the root of the majority of modern yoga nidra. Um, practices that people find here and there nowadays and it it each of the stages helps us to gradually disconnect from the external environment for a short time to set a focus or an, an intention that allows us to in a way imprint our own deeper mind advertise to ourselves something that we want to manifest in our lives and change some of the deeper programming so if, if we start to understand a little bit about how the mind works, particularly the age of zero to about eight for a child is very pertinent and very um, formative in which whatever we experience in that time frame really sits in the subconscious and unconscious layers of the mind. And it, it creates like a veil or glasses by which we view the world and And then in that way, we feel attracted to dislike, like, want, don't want, um, maybe react, respond, um, you know, connect with things according to that veil or according to those glasses that we are wearing that have already been formed from about zero to eight. And that subconscious program runs a lot of our day-to-day experience, even though that we're not aware of it. People like um, Bruce Lipton speaks about that, how 95% of our day-to-day experience is being run, run by that unconscious programming, which is already set 
by that at the age of eight. Not set in stone, we can change it and shift it, which is where yoga and yoga nidra in particular is very powerful. But um, that formative time can be very, very strong and we have to pull out the weeds, you can say, the things that don't serve us. The We have to work through some of that the programming so that we can free ourselves basically from it. And yoga nidra takes us into our uh, the depths of our own mind in a conscious way so we can set a new intention, way of being, advertise that to ourselves, and then also work our way through as a witness some of that programming and learn to um, be free from that in simple language. And um, therefore, for me, it's actually even the yoga nidra in and of itself has really shifted over the years where in the beginning, I just needed it to rest because I was so exhausted as a young mother, whereas now I use it more for that transformative focus where I'm really working on the deeper layers of who I am. And um, so I, yeah, I love yoga nidra. It's such a powerful practice and it, it's good for almost everybody. And most of us need it because we're living in times of quite a lot of input from the external environment, a lot of you know, sound, vibration, all these cell phones that go off all the time, a lot of demands in the external environment. And also, of course, in the last year, we've got the extra added um, challenge of the virus and what that has, has brought up in many of us. And so at that, that level, yoga nidra is so powerful for the nervous system, for helping to balance us, create uh, just a break from the day-to-day -day onslaught of sense input. And then if we work with it at that deeper level and we really open ourselves to go into that subconscious realm, we can start to change that patterning which allows us to wear different glasses and wears us, in fact, allows us to take the glasses off and see life and experience life from a, a more true perspective, you know, not clouded with the unconscious traumas or the things that have in some way um, put a veil in front of our experience. Yeah, Ganedra, there's so many things that come up when you talk about that I remember oh, many years of doing yoga nidra almost daily so that I could go home from work, do a yoga nidra, go out dancing or something like that. <laughs> or I'd wake at three in the morning and I couldn't get back to sleep and I did yoga nidra. Um, I also shared it with a couple of people really quite close to me and uh, they ended up using it through chemo and then um, ultimately through palliative care. Uh, so I'm heartened that that was such a gift that wasn't considered too woo-woo by quite a mainstream person to be able to be used. Um, and I know I've got family members who who use it as well, who I wouldn't have thought were, were interested, but they really enjoy it. And I also find it quite fascinating that, and this is kind of a broad topic, but that there's some people go, oh, yoga nidra, and then there's a trademark version of yoga nidra that's different. And I guess there's so much yoga now, not just yoga nidra, but also a variety. And you mentioned Bruce Lipton. I saw half a talk of his at an event last weekend. And I also managed to get there for the beginning of the event and listen a little bit to the end of Rachel Hunter teaching. And one of the class 
got on the microphone said, thank you so much for bringing the real yoga to New Zealand. And my reaction was, well, where have you been looking? It's been here for decades. Um, and, and she was very inspired and that was fabulous. And I thought it's so interesting that it takes a celebrity who was a model married to a rock star to allow someone to be inspired and then I kept thinking, because I'm very good at thinking, I've got a lot of air in my chart, as as you do too, um, so then we can talk. Uh, I was thinking, well, maybe these days, like when I started delving into yoga, and certainly when you did, there wasn't that much around. When I came back to move back to New Zealand from North America and my travels, it wasn't that hard to find the traditional yoga because we didn't have vinyasa yoga and yin yoga and uh, the wanderlust festivals which really was an advent of popularizing yoga in New Zealand and on one hand it's amazing that it's so much more mainstream that it's times have shifted since people say oh I know my friend's a yoga teacher do you know them and generally actually yes 15 years ago but now there's a lot of yoga teachers, especially after the GFC. A lot of people went back to study. There's lots of teacher training programs. Uh, there used to be like two that I knew of back in the day. Um, I studied, uh, once I returned here, I studied over in Australia at a couple of the ashrams there that you're very familiar with. Um, how do you navigate the fact that there's so much more choice? I mean, you would offering a lot of yoga nidra retreats and different things um, that you always have in my experience that's been part of what's been on offer but how do we reach the people that only realize that there's more to yoga from hearing it from Rachel Hunter than from here in the community where it's actually been for decades I mean I think you really hit the nail on the head and it was a real challenge I think it's both beautiful because there's so much yoga available that really is a household name nowadays and people can access it very easily you know they can go to their gym and they can do yoga so in some ways that's wonderful because so many more people are connected to yoga to meditation practices and so on and so forth but the other side to that is due to so many teachers' trainings, and many of the people teaching the teachers' trainings are barely trained. You know, you can actually do a 200-hour course and then become a teacher's trainer. And uh, for me, that is really watering down a very, very um, holistic and powerful system of practice, which touches all the layers of our being, our mind, our body, our um, energy system, our breath, everything is touched by yoga and when I go to these gym yoga classes where I have snuck in a few times really people are focused on the physical body and they don't realize or they don't connect to the fact that there's a, a deeper perspective on yoga so I do find that challenging to navigate but I guess the other thing is is that it's a stepping stone so it's a stepping stone for people to once they've had some experience of the physical expression of yoga many times people open to a new layer and so I think that's that's a positive 
but I also, it comes with a warning that it's very important that people really search out teachers that are experienced, that have not just a 200 hour training, that's fine to learn to touch your toes maybe, but it doesn't give one the whole perspective and it doesn't allow us to really do the transformative work. You know, it's it's kind of a little bit like going to the gym and doing your exercise and that's fine. Exercise is important, it's fantastic, but I guess in my opinion, don't call it yoga. Um, so it is a challenge. I don't know how to navigate it uh, exactly. Um, I suppose how I have worked with it in my own life is is really focusing on the deeper techniques because there's a lot of people out there doing the asana and the stretches and there's a lot of people out there teaching that and doing that. And so I have put my focus more on the other layers of yoga so that I can help people from a mental health perspective so that I can train teachers to go into deeper layers of experience through, um, you know, really knowing yoga nidra themselves and their own body, getting in touch with the breathing practices, getting in touch with some of the other parts of, of yoga through meditation, chanting. And as they do their own personal work and transformation, they then grow into um, being able to share that and support other other people better. So, that's how I focused on it is really keeping um, keeping alive and and creating an access point to the deeper practices and um, and and also sharing as I am now that be aware where you get for example your yoga nidra don't go to Spotify to get your yoga nidra because you're not going to necessarily get yoga nidra you know out there people I just read in a yin book recently. Um, the person had one page on yoga nidra. She said, this isn't really yoga nidra. This is just kind of a, you know, almost yoga nidra. And it was about a 10 minute practice where they focused on the body. And she in and of itself said, this isn't yoga nidra, but she still called it yoga nidra. So, um, you know, out there in the world, there's a lot of things that, you know, aren't necessarily the yoga nidra, aren't necessarily a very grounded meditation practice. So be really aware where the source of your practice is coming from and the source of your teachings. And if you simply want a physical workout, fine, go to go to the gym yoga class and, and do that. It's not a bad thing. It can be positive. But, but um, know that yoga is a much bigger perspective and it deals with all the layers of who we are, mind, body, energy, and um, health at all those levels as well. There's a lot in what you've said. I know as someone who's covered a few classes in the gym that it's a situation where, oh, I really would like to chant on three times to begin, but it's not the place and you kind of have to teach to the people that are there. I did know one really keen person that managed to get her little gym class and it was quite a small bunch of regulars get them sitting in meditation looking at the mind space and I was very impressed that she got them into that um yeah the 200 hours is I know that both the trainings I've done um were at least 600 uh, and even then when I first started teaching over a thousand Oh, is it okay? Over a thousand. I did some cross credits for that second one. So yes, thank you for the. <laughs> it was at least six hundred for for both. I know one of the ones I did was three months full time, three and a half months residential, um, and the other one was oh, three, four, five, 
I don't know, probably 10 weeks residential in its entirety. And yeah, I recently went to a class where the yoga nidra sounded very much like the one we've been trained in. And it was read from an iPad. And then I talked to someone else who learnt, you know, a trademarked version of Yoga Nidra. And they said, well, isn't it a script? And I said, no, we were trained we weren't allowed to have a script. And I feel like that's important to say to reach listeners because there's so many different approaches. And when I first trained, they encouraged us not to aim to be a yoga teacher full-time so that we didn't water down the teachings because we wanted to make money. And I know from observing yoga and the growth of yoga in New Zealand, um, which perhaps now is at about the point that Canada, where I was living, was 15, 17 years ago. Vancouver, for example, maybe not some of the smaller places uh, I lived, that it has really grown. There's so much there. How do you swim through it? I know that uh, my specialty for a while was kirtan and chanting and nadi yoga. And of course, yoga nidra comes from, is it nyasa yoga? It's an ancient tantric practice. It's not just something someone made up recently. And when I get to the kirtan and now people know what it is like half at least half there might only be three people in a group who don't know what kirtan is where it used to be like one person who knew and having taught students and now having a couple of the people that I taught out there headlining rock star kirtan um, and teaching both teaching um, kirtan on yoga teacher trainings like I do like it's it's, I've been thinking about the origins and how things are quite different in this modern world and how things morph from tradition, which can be both a blessing and a curse. And I'm thinking, hang on, do a lot of people, thousands of people probably, and that will sound small to overseas listeners, but in New Zealand, it's a small country, thousands of people have this definition of what kirtan is to them because of the style that they've been going to this or that or and the style that I do is quite different it's more niche Um, we're gonna all get together in June for International Yoga Day in Auckland New Zealand if you're around uh, for a six-hour akand kirtan continuous kirtan at uh, Kawai Porapura on the 20th of June and it's probably a question or amusing that won't get an answer and will just evolve how it evolves. And like you have, oh, how can I place myself to support what's happening in the mainstream? And I ask myself the same question. How can I support? I moved cities. That probably didn't help. But how can I support? And so I train a lovely bunch of cohort of teacher trainees every year and see them around sometimes and – uh as, as you must do very often and contribute and help people on their way and, and let it go. And if we observe things later, we do. Yeah, and I think it's also educating uh, both the public and and the teachers, you know, that, that for them it's not enough to just take 
a little taste of this and a little taste of that and a little taste of this and then call yourself a master and call yourself a yogini or a yogi. Like that, the essence of these teachings in past times, they were handed from a guru or a, a guru to disciple or a teacher, somebody who had spent their whole lifetime perfecting themselves and work, working with those deeper practices and really embodying those deeper practices. And they weren't given to the student until the student was ready, until the student had evolved themselves to a particular point. And, and they weren't down for us to just read in books and they weren't, you know, on YouTube so that you could just download them. And I think it is important to realize that the, the roots of yoga um, are, are very powerful and that that it's you can't just take little bits of the plant um, and get the whole benefit, so to speak. So it's important to realize that there's much deeper roots, and that if you want to be teaching these things, then do a proper training. Don't don't just go to a 200-hour training and get you know a half a day of yoga nidra and a few hours of kirtan and then think you're a master. It's, you know, go and do your own personal work, do the practice over years, not over a week, not over a few days, but over years, do the practices, evolve yourself. And really only from that point of really evolving ourselves, should we be sharing it out? And, you know, and in saying that, of course, there is a lot of practice, a lot of techniques that are useful to the general public. And it's fantastic that there's more ways for them to come across it and more ways to you know, to kind of embody them and, and get into um, their own transformation through it. But it, it, I just feel like we need to respect the lineages and respect the roots of yoga. And I don't feel like that happens enough in this day and age because people take a little bit of that and a little bit of that and a little bit of that and, and put it all together and then call it, you know, karma karuna yoga. And it's like, it's not karma karuna yoga. It's not my yoga. What I'm sharing with you is coming from those deeper roots. And who, what right do I have to um, take from all those places and make up my own yoga? And in a way, it, it waters it down and doesn't allow us to really get the whole benefit of it. And I find that in a lot of the teachers I come across, you know, they've got a little bit of that or they think they know that, but actually they're missing really foundational points or they're missing the understanding of how this is going to work on, on themselves because they haven't even practiced it or how it might work on their clients. And I, I do have to say that I see dangerous things happening, like advanced pranayamas being taught to people who have high blood pressure, like a heating pranayama being taught to somebody with high blood pressure or, you know, somebody with depression being put into a meditation state. And yet they, and it can it can be that meditation practices are helpful for certain forms of depression, but there's a lot of aspects that aren't helpful, you know? And so it's things like that. And I feel that people, teachers, I think it's wonderful to do the trainings. It's wonderful transformation, but see it as your personal um, evolution rather than, as you pointed out, Prem Ratna, trying to make money off of it because it's yoga shouldn't be commercial. I mean, of course, we do all have to live and um, be sustainable. And in the West, there's a different relationship to these spiritual practices than there is in the East. In the East, they're supported. The society supports the spiritual teachers. 
so that the spiritual teachings can be given freely without that kind of attachment to needing to get money. And um, I find that that is a block here in the Western environment and that, um, you know, it's become so commercial that it is often people are just turning out teachers and teachers training because it's a cash cow. And I think that's very sad because we're, we're missing uh, a lot of the depth that is available to us. So it's, yeah, it's a fine line because I also do, do think it's wonderful that more people have access to these techniques. It's just I worry about the watering down of it. Quite a dance, isn't it, between tradition and keeping that pureness and modern-day capitalism where people are trying to earn a living and also want to mention that there are so many of those teacher trainings that start with a 200-hour but then have all sorts of add-ons and professional development opportunities. I mean, getting a yoga teacher training qualification, it's like, it's the beginning. <laughs> it's an attainment. Yeah, you got a certificate, but it's the beginning of a journey and your really good teacher training places will encourage continued professional development because there are a lot around with a lot to offer. Absolutely. And and I think the thing is, is it's a lifetime journey. It's yoga isn't just something that you do and you know roll up your mat and go back to your day-to-day -day life. It's actually the essence is how can we incorporate these attitudes, incorporate this way of being the, the peace or the balance that we might feel in the mat, the posture of body that we hold. How how can we then bring that into the posture of our mind in front of life? How can we integrate the attitudes into challenges that arise, into difficulties that might come in our own body, our own mind, or in our family? How can we bring these attitudes out and off the mat and into daily life? And I think that's really the most important essence of it. And it's a lifetime practice, or maybe several lifetimes, depending on what you believe in. I think all yoga teachers have heard Oh, I can't do yoga, I can't touch my toes. It's not about touching your toes. It's about learning flexibility in your mind and life. Doesn't always get them along. Typically, it's a guy that says that. Yes. <laughs> um, and also an encouragement to any listeners who aren't really into yoga, this yoga teaching kind of talks, possibly not as relevant in your own life go to yoga anyway like if you're drawn to do it there's all sorts of positive benefits on the body the mind the emotions the nervous system especially the nervous system especially the nervous system even a you know basic class can be a stepping stone and so yeah I think it's important to go and give it a go and see how it influences you but do be a bit discerning and I guess where you get your yoga practices from and aim to make sure that you're aligning with a, a teacher that does have a good grounding and can um, and is doing their own work yeah so it's not enough just to do the practice on the mat but like actually doing their own evolutionary work within themselves but there's there's a lot out there and i think everybody can benefit and i totally encourage um you know find a teacher and do some yoga absolutely and there's always Yoga Nidra, which you've got a couple of CDs or, sorry, nobody calls them CDs anymore. You can, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I'm going through my midlife transits. Um, <laughs> you've got a couple of albums. I know um, that there's that beautiful one that's 
what, 12 or 15 years old that's got beautiful heart meditation as well as sun salutations and you've got a more recent one that's chakra sounds and and all sorts and I just want to be able to slip in here that the pronunciation chakras is a westernized version and it's a Sanskrit word with a hard ch so chakras absolutely and um, yeah I do and I also I yoga for women um, kind of some facts yoga for women which is really also um, I think relevant and that there's a yoga nidra on that one and you can find them all on our website so it's anahata a-n-a-h-a-t-a dash retreat dot org dot nz and there you'll find all the types of programs coming up but also our mp3s and quite a few of them are with me yoga books and support so there is a lot of blogs and inspirations that can keep people you know moving there's also some great recipes i made sabji a few times during lockdown <laughs> <laughs> yeah great recipes too um and if anyone is in the area of course we are lucky enough in aotearoa new zealand to have a, a lot of freedom of travel um, and anahat yoga retreat is at the top of the south island uh, the nearest airport is nelson so um, not an international airport, but only a short flight away. <laughs> so once we open up again, if any of you overseas, please come and visit. It's a beautiful spot and you'll be able to immerse yourself in traditional yoga with a really great view. Absolutely. And there's other thing, other traveling events and online events. So do um, connect into the website and see what's, what's happening. Lots of different events uh, at the moment quite a bit around New Zealand but usually you're three months in India. I am yes yeah, so this is the first time in 20 something years that I haven't been to India the last um, year and a half so it's been an interesting experience but it's also been really nice personally to pause and I think a lot of people are reflecting that to, to have less of that um, you know external need to travel at the moment and really be more still both physically but also I think that helps the inner stillness which is wonderful and needed. yeah and what's recently inspired you over well since lockdown before lockdown but particularly during lockdown because I had so much more time um, than in the past I listened to a lot of summits particularly around vagus nerve parasympathetic nervous system which yoga nidra and breathing methods and a lot of the restorative practices which I've been working with deeply myself and sharing with others um, kind of focus on that parasympathetic or relaxation response. And the thing that's been really inspiring and amazing to me is seeing how what has been taught to us or given to us as gifts 5,000 years ago is now, you know, getting the tick from science. And um, for example, the mantra Aum. So you were speaking earlier about Aum in the gym and not being able to use it. Well, one of the things I discovered not so long ago is that the mantra Aum influences or has a, an impact on the vagus nerve and helps us to get higher vagal tone. And what that means is that it supports us to come into a deep relaxation response more quickly. And simply by chanting Aum, we can shift into that rest and digest and our ability to be more balanced from a nervous system point of view, which then gives us a different perspective in life. 
And so, yeah, I've been very inspired by, by delving into some of the science around these practices and seeing that parallel and alignment and how science is really supporting these ancient techniques. And I think that's useful for people to understand. That is one thing that I find very special about the tradition of yoga that you teach is it is so science-based. Yes. It's not woo. It's always the scientific approach, the observation, the experimenting, and there is research to back it up. Absolutely. I think that actually the Bihar School of Yoga is one of the first organizations to start to do studies, and some of their earlier studies wouldn't obviously be kind of at the level of peer review these days, but um, already in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they were doing uh, showing the benefit to society. And, and also they have been disseminated, not just for spiritual life, but for the needs of community. And so you find this style of practice in the prisons and the um, you know elder homes in hospice and in many different areas of society where there's need and there's a lot of need at the moment with the people's mental health particularly it's always been there but triggered uh, by the recent challenges we've had with the virus and so I, I feel that these practices are becoming more and more into their own and a need a need in society so Thank you so much for your time today, Karma Karuna. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's not often kind of get the luxury of time to have these kind of discussions. And so now we get to share them with whoever wants to listen to them. <laughs> I've really loved it, Pramrat, and thank you for doing this uh, fantastic blog and inspiring people around the world with your own path and inspiration. So beautiful to take part in it. The music track for this show was easy to pick. Inspiration flowed one particular day when I was visiting a friend out at Tehinga, a small coastal town on Auckland's west coast, with miraculously no mobile cell coverage. I haven't written a lot of kirtan, the chanting we spoke of earlier, though I often sing traditional chants or those by other modern day kirtan artists. This was one that came through the creative channel that day when I'd been thinking about Karma Karuna and the concept of compassion. Here is Karuna Mayama, an original kirtan, featuring the Indian instrument traditionally used for kirtan, the harmonium.
Unraveling Midlife is brought to you from Aotearoa, New Zealand by www.sarahmarlowspence.com Theme music is by Sarah Marlow Spence and Saraspati Marie Willis and art by Samantha Hepburn. <laughs>